Hi, friends, and welcome to the Oak Roots podcast. I'm your host, Sam Myrick, and I'm going to get you into today's Your Story So Far episode as fast as I can. Before I do, uh, remember that I'm available to have this same kind of talk with you. We can take a couple of hours to walk through your life story so far, and then you can choose whether you want to keep it for yourself or have it published like this one. We can even keep meeting after that first talk and work through some of what comes up together there, whether that's blockers that are keeping you from what you want to do next, or you getting some help around organizing or managing other parts of life. You can go to oakroots.net to see services available and what fees look like, or you can email me at sam at oakroots.net. So that's what I can do, but I always want to make sure you know what I can't do. Uh, There's a lot, actually, but today what I mean is I can't provide mental health services. I am not a trained or certified counselor, and so sometimes these talks uh, or my coaching can start to sound therapy adjacent. That's probably just because I've had a lot of therapy myself. There will be some times in these recordings where you might be thinking, why doesn't Sam lean into that comment more or, or press the guest a little on, on the issue around this or that? Uh, and the answer, once again, is that I'm not a therapist. I don't always know how to do that. Uh, but there is a lot I think I can help you with. And uh, not everybody has to go all the way to, to starting counseling when things are tough. Sometimes you just need someone to talk to. Or, or who makes you feel less alone, or, or who can help you understand more about who you've been so far and where you could be going. So if that sounds like what you're needing, I'm here to help. All right, let's get into today's story. One is being on a ferry in a car in Galveston, Texas. I think I was three. And there was a, I, I remember it, so my family on vacation, because there was an ambulance on the ferry. And that, that concerned me that the ferry couldn't go fast to help the ambulance get where it needed to go. Second memory is vague memory of July 4th, 1976. The milkman came over. I did have a milkman the first five or six years of my life, and I lived in the suburb of Dallas. Milkman came over, and my parents let me get an ice cream sandwich from the milkman uh, for breakfast, and that was an unusual indulgence, uh, breakfast indulgence. I also, third memory, I guess this would have been 77. I was at a movie theater in San Antonio with my parents and my siblings one of the few family vacations we all took together because i was so young but we were watching star wars in the theater the death star blew up and my dad who i didn't know this had fallen asleep during the film (laughs) and that woke him up and i looked at him waking up and was aghast that a human being could have fallen asleep during this movie and be awakened and then i became a dad years 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 later and i totally understand the opportunity on a family vacation to sleep whenever you get it yeah and it's dark in those movie theaters and and comfortable and you're exhausted um um i've I've fallen asleep in a few movies i don't know that i've ever that ever one that i would have thought was as like seminal or important or amazing as star wars but 
we'll cut cut him some slack. I did. I fell asleep uh, in in like the middle or what I assume was the middle. I don't know of every single Lord of the Rings movie because that's just not my thing. No, I was. Uh, I would put in that same category: the line, the Witch in the Wardrobe. That would be a a, a <laughs> bad movie uh, on behalf of evangelicals wanting to fall asleep. <laughs> I actually, I actually did fall asleep. I did fall asleep during the Passion of the Christ. I saw oh, the Waco, okay. Texas. I hated it and was really exhausted at the end. It had been a long day. And I, I, I remember dozing off and thinking, this is really ironic that uh, I, the pastor of a church, am falling asleep during Jesus's uh, beatdown. Well, it was a ton of reading. Uh, you know, since it was in Aramaic or whatever, like, so the subtitles yeah. don't help with, with when you're tired. Um, d- w- which of those three things, the earliest memories for you, d- do you have a concept of, of chronology there? Or are they all kind of, they could be equal. They're all around the same time of life. Yeah. Star Wars is definitely 77 because it was in the theater. Uh-huh. So yeah, obviously then the July 4th would be before that 76. And the only reason I think the Galveston ferry experience was earlier was because I was told that. It's okay. like, I don't even know if I remember. I mean, we can get into a whole thing about memory and um, and story, but, but I don't know how well I actually remember yeah. the Galveston experience, but remember the retelling of the Galveston experience. Including that you were, were like bothered by the ambulance may not be able to get to, like that's not a feeling you remember feeling it's it's something that's been relayed to you no actually i do i well you know i i like i remember um i remember having that for sure i guess it's that the story has been retold yeah since i was probably five years old that i do remember having that feeling but I also have like that memory is kept alive because it's been a memory that's been retold mm-hmm. when I was young, even when I was seven or eight years old, like family members, people were impressed, I guess, that I had mm-hmm. a memory from, you know, three years old, I, I guess. I don't know. Well, I, I would assume too that there, I mean, like what struck me as you told those stories um, is like the, the star Wars one is one of like, uh, oh my gosh, how could dad be asleep? This is awesome. Um, and then the the ice cream sandwich is like something that, that you are, are gifted or something that's different about an experience. I missed that you said it was 76. So it was the bicentennial. Like that's the day Yeah, uh, where when you got an ice cream sandwich on the 200th right. anniversary of America. Congratulations. Um, but the interesting thing to me about the Galveston story is that there's like this empathy and sensitivity present you know like maybe at an earlier age you're worried about other people and i know enough about your story or some of the things we might get to or i know my own story that some of those kinds of sensitivities get called out in early childhood or made whether they're praised or whether they're critiqued but it like locks something in for some people to um for those kind of stories to be there and like me as a as a people pleaser or obliger or empathetic person um like i have some of those same kinds of stories that were conveyed to me so early that i feel like i was almost forced to be that kind of person or care about others so that's that's kind of an interesting that's thing interesting. that that you know about yourself 
Walk through family dynamics uh, for me. You, you talked about your father being older uh, and, and tired, and maybe that explains the Star Wars thing. But uh, what, what did your family look like? They're all blonde, average height, very waspy. But okay. in terms of like right, we can move family on. dynamics, et cetera, I was the youngest of four uh, siblings were between the ages of 10 and 15 years older than me. Quite frankly, I was a mistake. And, you know, my parents would not admit to that, but definitely was not the planned child. My dad was 44 when I was born. My mom was 39, almost 40. And so I'm 50 right now. And I still don't really have much memory of my dad being the age that I am today. So that was a, certainly an interesting dynamic. My family moved, uh, and I say family, I actually, not my full family, just part of my family moved to Nashville from Dallas where I was born when I was six years old, almost seven years old. My brother, my oldest brother and sister were in college. My oldest brother was in high school. And so in many ways, by the time I was like eight, it was, I had grown up in this house full of six people, dad was around, um, siblings were all around, lots of energy to where we were in a different state. Uh, all of my siblings were gone. They were off doing somewhat adult type things. And then my dad was traveling a ton and it was just, it was just me and my mom. So I was both an only child and grew up in a, a family of, of six with three siblings. Okay. So, so and w what's the first place that you remember growing up, like kind of walk me through locations and moves. Grew up, grew up in Richardson, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas, uh, and really probably the first, or at least the first northern suburb of Dallas. And lived in a cool, like I, I think, look going back to it, it's like really cool neighborhood where everybody knew everybody. Um, and had a real sense of, of comfort of knowing people and being known. When we moved again at age six to Nashville, it was actually a suburb of Nashville called Brentwood and Brentwood and Franklin are big and populous now, but back in those days, they were just kind of farming towns. Brentwood didn't even have a high school at that point. And so it was a very almost rural type setting. Like it was in a neighborhood, a subdivision, but every house was on an acre lot. Uh, there weren't any fences in the neighborhood. There was a huge five or 6,000 acre field right next to us. So there was a kind of benign neglect that I had imposed upon me in moving uh, to Nashville where lots of kids my age in the neighborhood I could ride bikes with friends, explore creek beds, and just make up our own adventures without much parental or adult oversight. And we lived there for four years. That kind of freedom had some cost, but it was also really enjoyable. And I'm grateful that I had it. Then when I was 10 or 11 years old, moved back to Dallas and uh, spent the rest of my adolescence in, in Dallas until I went off to college. Walk me through some of what you mean by um, the, like the pros and cons, or I think you use the word benefit and cost uh, about the time in, in Brentwood, because I think that some of that does sound kind of idyllic, but, but what were the ways that, yeah. that that was tough? The ways that it was tough 
I was exposed to people, to events, to like activities that were probably, not probably, were definitely beyond my age threshold or maturity threshold that were, um, looking back on it, just, man, I, I wish the, the parent Don wishes that he could protect the child Don, or at least if not protect, be a resource to talk through some of those, some of those things. But that said, I wouldn't change that time that I had and the freedom that I had. It was, you know, I ride bikes all day long. I would, we would explore the neighborhood, explore. It was, um, the, the freedom was something that added a lot of benefit to my life and am ultimately grateful. Also as a storyteller, teller, a lot of really great stories kind of came from that, you know, from that season, just because there was so much freedom and kids do stupid things. And, um, I did plenty of those stupid things. That, that makes sense to me. Um, I, I guess, is it right of me to assume like we can't change anything about, about our past, but like maybe the best case scenario would have been a lot of that freedom and fun that you got to have, but, but, but some more protection potentially from like immediate family. If, if you had had siblings maybe in the house with you that were just a little older or parents who were younger or a dad who wasn't around, who was around more, like, do you think that you would have been able to process some of that kind of stuff and you, you felt a little more alone? Yeah. I think that's, I think that's well, well said definitely would have made a a big difference and again i like I, like you too i know i'm several years older than you but we both grew up in generations where things weren't talked about uh, as much and at least with with in, with most of my friends certainly with me between parents and child um or parents and children and i do think that's where having siblings that are your age can be very helpful because kids be kids and you know it's a lot easier for a 13 year old to talk to his or you know her, or her 11 year old sibling about about stuff even if they're not trying to help them process it's just offhanded comments like that dude's crazy or that was that thing was ridiculous or you know grow up or just those things that can normalize or provide some sort of like sympathetic ear for or eye for um, for the events that are just a lot of times normal occurrences when you're 10, 11, 12 years old. But if you have no one to experience them with or to help you, that's guide you through that can feel like you're the only one experiencing this kind of life. And so I, even though I had a lot of friends growing up, I also feel like I grew up, a, uh, I spent a lot of time in isolation um, or alone in my, I mean, I'm a thinker and a feeler. And mm -hmm. so I was just alone in my head and with my feelings a lot processing or trying to process things that I think quite frankly, the majority of kids probably don't even think about. What, what are some examples of that? I, I guess I'm curious if at the time, did you know that you, yeah. that you were different or having a different experience or it's not some, we only know what we know and it wasn't until years later, you realized your childhood was unique. Pro probably so. I think I was somewhat aware of it when I was, I would say seven or eight years old. So just moved to Nashville. Again, go from this full house to this empty house. Dad's on the road uh, most most weeks. He'd come home on the weekend. And pretty early on in my time there, I developed obsessive compulsive disorder. I don't know if developed the right language or it emerged might be better language. And 
that primarily manifested itself around going to bed rituals. So I would check the back door to make sure it was locked and then was afraid that once I let go, that somehow in the letting go process, I had unlocked the door. And so I'd repeat, 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 repeat this. Then I'd go to the front door. Then I was afraid that maybe something happened when I was at the front door. And I'd go back to the back door. Then I'd finally make it up to my room and I would check my closets. I would check behind the, the, um, the door. I would check underneath the bed and then go through that process over and over and over again. And then when I finally made it to bed, uh, I could seldom go to sleep immediately. And there were times where I would lay awake in bed for hours and hours. Mm. Um, and I knew that my other friends didn't have that experience. I think some of it was being in this new space um, without any family in a pretty big house. I don't know. There, I've, I've worked through that time of my life and I can't recall other events that might have happened that contributed to that. But I would, you know, my parents would help some. They would invite me. No, they wouldn't invite me. I would drag my sleeping bag into their room or my mom's room if my dad was traveling, as the case may, may, might have been, and would um, ask if I could sleep on the floor in the sleeping bag. Sometimes they would let me, oftentimes they wouldn't. And I can kind of understand where they were coming from. This kind of like, you know, this kid's like eight now. He needs to like learn to be able to help himself go, go to sleep or, you know, work through this on his own. But I mean, I, my four years in Nashville was spent like that. And very rarely did I have a good night's sleep. Um, and then that extended when I moved to, to Dallas in the, the, the fifth grade, although I, I began to get some outside help with that. So, and then when I would have a friend spend the night, um, or if my sister was in town and I, you know, she was in the room next door to me, or I would sleep with my sister, uh, or my brother, you know, just like as, you know, a little kid, then I could immediately fall asleep. That was never an issue if I was with others. It was just the sense of being isolated vulnerable. And then the adults in my life, primarily my parents, I love, um, but who I would expect to get help from didn't or couldn't provide the kind of support that I needed to alleviate those, those issues. Mm -hmm. And yeah. So anyway, so I, again, aware that I, I was unusual, maybe not the right word, but my other friends didn't seem to like deal with this. And so there was some shame involved. And I think that was an early part of my uh, childhood experience, probably most children, but particularly think uh, for me, this shame experience and that translated in like what they call in Buddhism, the second arrow. So like I'm suffering the thing that I'm suffering from. And then instead of dealing with that, I'm, you know, wounding myself with the second arrow of all of the guilt and the feelings that I shouldn't be dealing with this. And that began for me at an early age, the mind's always working. I'm laying awake in bed, thinking about this possibility or that possibility. So um, anyway, I kind of forgot where we started with in that question. Um, but it was just this act of mind and a sense of isolation that I'm, I'm, I feel different. No, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you, you shared all that. It's the, it's the kind of, I mean, it sounds like the most important thing from, from childhood for you, um, or, or something that, that yeah. might even become foundational. So there's a, thank you there's, for sharing. I do think there's like a bit of rosebud in that whole experience. 
um, where I look back on it and it has a lot of, it holds a lot of uh, keys to like uh, the unfolding of my life, but in somewhat vague and uh, undefined kind of ways, some of them. Yeah. Rosebud being an allusion, allusion to Citizen Kane. Yeah. I got it, but that's nice of you to, to clear that up for anyone that hasn't seen that. Or um, it's, a, it's a pretty good movie. Like uh, maybe that may be like one of the best movies. Uh, maybe yeah. it should be my opinion. Yeah. Orson, but, Orson Welles did a pretty good job of this first movie. 26, 27. What did that help look like that you were able to, to eventually get? So when we moved to back to Dallas again, so this is like 1983 and I am 10, almost 11 years old, I think within the first year there or so, I went to see a therapist and I only saw this therapist four or five times and had a really good experience with him and with therapy overall, which I'm just as in a human being, I'm really thankful for my parents again in that era having and i think they were they were just desperate um and, and i was desperate for helping find that solution it's i again i only remember going four or five times and it kind of fixed and i think that's the key word fixed the the symptoms for the time being although they they came back in various ways um and i remember you know, so often especially in dallas uh, when I when we came back, laying in bed and having laid there for hours, or I'd go, I'd go to the bath, I'd go to the bathroom because I could turn a light and like read uh, books or magazines or whatever. Go back into the room, and at like four or four thirty in the morning, um, I could hear a neighbor go off to work, and that was like a a cue for me that nighttime was over and that morning was happening, and I felt a kind of relief that. Um, that we were transitioning to the morning. So that the help helped in some ways. It helped address the symptoms uh, for a time being. But I still struggle with sleep. And just about everybody in my life knows that. And it's, I don't weigh uh, awake in bed with fear. There, I have seasons. A lot of times if I'm working on a project that I'm really excited about, I'll wake up at two or three o'clock in the morning and won't be able to go back to sleep. And I'll just end up getting out of bed and working on, you know, on something, but, um, but it's, you know, getting sober, doing all the therapy that I've done, all of the reflection work it, to me, my sleeping is just an original wound that I think I'll always bear. And I'm not opposed to the, you know, that narrative being changed, but at half more than halfway through my life, likely um, there's a, a bit of acceptance that this is just part of, at this point, my DNA or who I am and um, a part of how I live life. Well, again, thank, thank you for sharing some of that. that. That's, I think, really important. I know we both think that stuff can be really foundational, maybe even into things that we'll, we still have to talk about. But but I am curious what, I mean, that could be framed as a as a hard thing, as a, as a tough thing to deal with. But, but, but what were things, what were other things that were happening for you in childhood and, and adolescence that that you feel like were kind of forming you, whether, whether good or bad, who were you becoming? So I developed really close friendships. I mean, not unusual, but 
like most kids, I had some buddies that I just had an absolute blast with playing and exploring and um, and just like learning how to live life kind of together on our own. I was a huge sports fan and um, loved playing baseball as, as a kid. Basketball was a huge, huge, you know, I, I, I almost didn't think I had a choice. It was like, this is just what we men do. We love the, the Dallas Cowboys and we cheer for them, you know, through thick and thin. And uh, we, we, I, 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 my dad could never really, I only remember a handful of times that my dad threw the ball with me or that we would, um, I think part of it was an age thing and part of it was him being away thing uh, together. Uh, but when my brother would come home from college, we'd shoot hoops together. I'd play with my friends. In retrospect, I've done work over the past four or five years. I also love drawing and uh, creating and playing on my own and building blocks and building car house house of cards and uh, or card houses and um, uh, just baking something out of whatever I could get my my hands on and. I've done some work I think we've talked about over the past, this is about four or five years ago, where I look back over my childhood and see this artist at work, this creative at work. And I think in many ways, my love for sports held a container for me to explore creativity and art without being, quote, a weird or unusual art kid. Because there's nobody in my family is an artist. We didn't like, that wasn't even, a, it wasn't like, an option in, in life. And so I didn't know what to do with those creative urges that I had, but in sports, sports allowed me to decorate my room and I would redecorate my room every three or four months with like, and it looked good. I look at pictures from my childhood. I'm like, damn, this kid has a good aesthetic. It's like, like posters and pennants and things that I would hang and stuff I'd cut out of Sports Illustrated. It was me sitting in class and doodling uniforms or making up my own logos for sports teams or sneakers. It was um, me uh, when my when I was alone in the house role playing and uh, I would spend hours you know doing dance basically. But it was me throwing the ball to myself and you know running across the end zone with two seconds left. Or like I would mimic and play through hours of um sports in my you know by myself uh in front on a stage so to speak um i drew i love to draw sports gave me something you look through all my drawings as a kid and it's just sports drawings after sports drawings after sports drawings so um anyway i loved sports but it really has provided for me over the past 5 or 10 years a real key to understanding some of the deeper parts of me that were encouraged, um, but not, actually, I don't think it wasn't. I just think for something internally inside of me felt like I needed to do something more masculine in, in mm. the world that I lived in, the world and that sports and that type of thing was um, the path to gaining some reference point for myself and forming my identity rather than art or kind of the creative act. And I, and I also just love sports. I love competition. I'm super, I'm super competitive. I, it's not so much that I like winning. It's that I hate losing. Um, and that's stuff I've been working on over the past decade or two, but it wasn't the thrill of a Cowboys victory so much as it was 
separating myself or not wanting to like have the agony of defeat. And that translated to the sports that I played and the other passions that I pursued. And I definitely, um, I definitely did love sports in and of itself, but I, I do look back at my life at that season of my life with clarity. I heard, um, Oh God, um, Daniel Day Lewis in an interview from like 30 or 35 years ago and maybe 30 years ago. And they asked him when or how he became an actor. And his answer was, I never stopped. And the interviewer kind of leaned in wanting more. And Daniel Day Lewis said, which also I feel like you have to say his whole name, not just one of his names. Daniel Day-Lewis said, uh, all of us are actors. All of us grow, you know, we're our, our original identity is, is we play, we act. Um, but somewhere along the way, most of us stop. I just never stopped. And I really like that way of framing creativity, um, framing kind of who we are as children as being a key to who we um, could be as adults. I stopped playing, uh, not completely, but I did stop playing um, at some point. Yeah, I, I haven't heard heard it put exactly like that before. I, I really like that too. I um, I think about you've done you have at least some familiarity with the Enneagram, right? If you've done anything with that, mm -hmm. um, yeah. I don't know if you. Of course, yeah, yeah, of course, okay. yeah. I, I don't know if you're interested in sharing your number or anything that. That's up to you. But but I'm a three on the Enneagram, um, it, which is one of the one of the ways that can be framed. Like one of the words for it is the performer, um, and so that really resonates with me. I think about all right. the ways as a child that I had to kind of act or meet needs in my own family, oftentimes emotional ones for, for like for others. Um, and that I was mm -hmm. always like, you know, kind of going through change or, or metamorphosis, like a chameleon who could, who could be empathetic, could do what he needed to do in any given moment to take care of people or win people over. Um, and the really like confusing thing about that for a kid is, yeah. is trying to figure out what the healthy ways, because there are some benefits to being a chameleon. Um, you and I have been successful in sales jobs and now sure. you're a creative uh, a filmmaker and a writer and, um, and you could probably do a lot of different kinds of things because of that. But the, the tough things about it is it's hard to know who you really are. Um, and that's been a big struggle for, sure. for me. Yeah, that I really identify with that or it resonates with me. I, I've done Enneagram work. I, I know it's more, it's deeper and more complex than Myers-Briggs, but Myers-Briggs, whenever I do a Myers-Briggs, it resonates with me to a point to where when I read my type, it's, I get emotional reading it because it's, it so articulates kind of who I am and how I move through the world. But so I, I am a I score equally high in the Enneagram on three, on four, and on seven. Um, so the kind of the achiever, the individualist, and the enthusiast. Um, and I know that good healthy Enneagram that's not supposed to happen. You're supposed to have these wings that do this and that. That just that doesn't work for me and doesn't resonate with my, um, you know, my life. That said, like this idea of being a um, I have have a 
a tendency in life to take your temperature to know how I feel and um, and to take the temperature of the room to know how I should act. And that is some of that works in my advantage, but there is a great cost to that as well. And it also conflicts with my individualist kind of part of me. And there's always been uh, this kind of conflict between and and also because the church preaches such a like humility and thinking of others and this kind of stuff that like, yes, theoretically it's good. I believe in it, but it really can sabotage development as a for, for childhood development and a sense of owning who we are in the world and um, how we interact with the world. Um, and we talked to, I talked about shame earlier. Um, I both through just things we did and did not talk about as a family. And then uh, the hours and hours each week that I spent in church settings, I just, I, I felt shame for being human. I felt shame for having a body. Um, I felt shame any type of natural desire that I had, um, I felt shame uh, about. And so while I don't, I'm not going to, yeah, I just, for me, there were some really positive things about growing up in the church. And then there are some very negative things about growing up in the church that I've really not worked with until the last five or 10 years. Um, but I would go so far as to say almost like religious abuse, um, not in a, uh, physical or sexual kind of way, but in a emotional development kind of way. Um, so I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but there is this always this tension that I felt in my youth, both as a child, my teenage years, and in my 20s, and really on beyond between the, uh, between who I am and who I think I'm supposed to be. And, um, and this emphasis growing up in evangelical cultures that you're not supposed to think about yourself. You're not supposed to be self-centered. You're supposed to be humble. And yet at the same time, we're encouraged to perform because every everything you do, you're doing as a witness of Jesus. And all of your friends are watching you and their eternal salvation rests on whether you drink or not. And that's a fucking terrible, shitty, terrible, terrible way to... Um, and it's all implicit, very little. Well, some of it's not, some of it's very explicit, but for Christian teenagers to bear that kind of, and youth to bear that kind of weight imposed is just inexcusable. And uh, everybody was doing the best they can with what they have. But, and I, and um, I don't have anger towards that. I understand, but um, I do, I do think it's, a sad weight that many of us in the church have to bear or had to bear. Mm -hmm. No, I'm, I'm perfectly willing to, for us to talk through that for, for a little bit, because I think it's again, foundational kind of in both our stories. Um, I was about to ask like, what is moving out into the world look like for you? Like starting to grow up, starting to be your own person, like, how you pick college and what to do, but I think this is tied into that. So let's camp out here for a little bit, oh, maybe with, with both of us. Um, what? So what were the ways, if, if you don't mind sharing a little more, um, and I'm also willing to like us just talk for a bit and then cut out anything you tell me to later if you need to, but like, what were the ways that you sure. think you had a, a unique experience 
around the church or faith and and adolescence and what were the what are some of those ways you you've learned over time that that maybe everyone has a, an unhealthy experience uh kind of in in religious life or or faith life I want to make sure that I kind of stay true to the question the first one I I am, there are many things I'm grateful for. There's some things I'm grateful for, for the church. It did give me community. Um, it did help develop, like, my ego, like, lowercase e, like, giving me a kind of a framework for, like, understanding the world and my place in it, even though I don't particularly adopt that, you know, fully that same framework today. Most of all, I'm thankful that I, or I'm grateful that it pointed me into a direction outside of myself to a mystery that um, is a energy and life-giving and love-giving energy in, in the world, I believe, and in my life, certainly. And though the construct that I have for that is very, very different than it was 30 or 40 years ago and even 10 years ago. I'm grateful that I was brought up in a world where there is a mystery, a love, and a power outside of myself. Um, and I think intuitively, naturally, I'm a bit of a mystic and a seeker, and I'm definitely a seeker. And um, so I'm grateful. I'm grateful for that. I'm not sure if that fully, like, I guess kind of extending beyond to how that um, took hold of me, especially my teen years, because in middle school, I was exceedingly unpopular at school, had no friends, very, very little friends, was was an outcast, a nerd, like, and I wasn't like that in elementary school. so. I kind of move into this new school. For me, it was in the seventh grade, seventh through ninth grade. And it was like, suddenly I went from being this kind of cool, popular kid to being an outcast. And that night and day, it was almost like I couldn't even figure out how it happened. But you know, here I am. That was contrasted with this experience I had at church in youth group where I had lots of friends. People wanted me around. If I missed, people noticed and so I did have these really great experiences that I'm very, very thankful for um, as a teenager. If I didn't have that to contrast this experience at school, I don't know where I would have ended up or, you know, what kind of demons I would be um, maybe still wrestling with um, today. Nothing's perfect, though, right? So also at that same time, when we're sexually developing, the, the, the church gave me a framework to just pile and dump more and more shame on myself for feelings I had for natural desires that I had. Um, so I really probably like most people in with church or those who just grew up. However, like we all have this like conflicting mess of some, most people doing the very best they could with what they had, maybe others with more ill intent and us as humans trying to navigate and triangulate all of these different powers uh, that feel so much bigger than us uh, as a kid. Sports was where 
I was always looking for an identity and I really wanted that identity to be in sports, to be like a, a regarded, well-esteemed athlete. And I was a pretty good athlete, but not a phenomenal athlete. And I knew I was only good enough to really focus in on one sport in high school and play JV basketball my sophomore year, but then broke my wrist the summer after my sophomore year and, and um, was in the cast for six months. And just that was like the end of high school basketball for me. And uh, I ended up in high school spending two summers as a summer missionary in California, which is helpful for me in a lot of ways. But what was unusual about that, it was like I was still really struggling with identity. And it was like, it felt like, I don't think this was true, but it felt like from my perspective that all of my friends, you know, Greg was a musician, David was a basketball player, you know, Jay was uh, uh, really good at math. Like all of my friends had this thing that they excelled at. And I was just a nice guy um, without anything to really own. When I went to California, I came back summer after my junior year to my senior year in high school. And suddenly like people were enthralled by me. I was the kid who went off for the summer and did mission work and came back. And I, uh, I had like gained a lot of confidence and I became a confident storyteller and, and people began to whisper about me, like, this is somebody who would be really good at ministry, or this is somebody who has, a, you know, the Lord's blessed him or has anointed him or whatever kind of language we would use. And Again, as someone who is, without being conscious of it, is measuring or taking your temperature to know how I feel, for the guy who didn't feel much of anything about himself to suddenly start having this kind of feedback, um, I don't think I was called to the ministry <laughs> so much as uh, lots of people around, it, around me pointed me towards the ministry. And I was happy to follow the direction that they were pointing in and to receive the affirmation and, um, yeah, the affirmation that they were giving me. Confirmation. Like, okay, finally, yeah. I'm somebody. Like, I've got, I've got a thing. And I was really good at that. I was really good at, like, when I was working with kids or doing youth ministry stuff in college or whatever, I was good at it and it felt good. One of the reasons why I, I ran so many miles in my twenties and thirties and then bike was because it hurt, but I was good at it. And I like doing things that I'm good at. So I, you know, I, I kept doing those things that uh, I showed some proficiency towards and then received the affirmation and confirmation from others that I was, I was good at these things, but particularly at this thing. Yeah, I, um, I'm, I'm right there with you and, and have thought about it a ton. Again, yeah. I, I've done more work in, in 2023 on myself emotionally and everything from, from EMDR and, and the most consistent counseling I've ever mm -hmm. had Great. with one person for the longest amount of time, like more than everything else kind of leading up to this. Um, and so many things have, have come to the forefront for me. And one of them is that I, uh, it sounds so extreme, but I, I really don't feel like I had an adolescence. Um, 
because of some of the same kinds of things that that you talked about. And some of that language comes from, from my therapist, um, who's like those, the period, whether we started at like 10, 12, whatever, up to like heading off to college or halfway through there, maybe all the way up to where you're, uh, to mid twenties when your brain finally fully develops, like that period is supposed to be one of, of exploration, of play, of, screwing up like uh, of people fi- saying their ninth grade year i think i'm going to be a lawyer oh, yeah. and then their 10th grade year i'm going to be a astronaut and then, like like and i uh, even a little earlier that, than you um at like 14 or 15 i'm starting to get those kinds of pushes in that direction um he's a he's an yeah. empathetic person who can speak well in front of others and and seems to care. He's here at youth group all the time because I didn't have any, I didn't know what else I was. My, my family had split up when I was 10. And then I'm with a new version of my family, 11, 12, 13. And then I come to faith like at that point in middle school. And I just latch on to whatever I can find some meaning or direction. Yeah. In. And, it, and for like 10 or 15 years, I thought that was the, Holy Spirit and God. And I'm not ready to say that it wasn't or like wasn't this mix of things, but it also was people yeah. that patted me on the back and called me preacher boy and were really, really proud sure. of me. All of the things there that I knew from yeah. the time I was 14 to the time I was 34 when it all fell yeah. apart, what my path was, um, I, I can kind of get. Yeah. It's only been the last five or so years that I fully appreciated the depth of um, the impact and the cost of growing up in this mindset where I am born evil. I am in need of forgiveness from, from really from day one, that any natural thing that comes out of me is probably evil, and that the natural progression of growing up um, is so sanctified and at conflict with what it means to be in many ways human. That's not the way it should be, even I think from a healthy perspective of church, but it is the way it was for me, I think for um, for most of us. And so um, I also think that a lot of what the church provided me was protection from the fear that it created outside of me. So like drinking, sex, um, cussing, uh, uh, R-rated movies, watching something on Cinemax with three buddies at one o'clock in the morning on a Friday night, that um, all of this is bad and evil. And so the church then provided a space of giving me some sort of identity. I'm not that, but really I was just quite frankly, afraid of all of that. I was afraid of going to a party. I was afraid of putting myself out there and like risking myself. And so I had this kind of um, not only like vocational um, uh, meaning, but also this like arrogance uh, that was based in fear. The arrogance was, Quite frankly, I'm just scared shitless to go into a party. And what if I go there and I don't have any friends? And, you know, what if I uh, slip and drink? And like, what would that? But I didn't want to, I didn't want to deal with those fears. I didn't know how to. All this is happening unconsciously. So it's much easier to be a judgmental asshole as a 13 or 14 year old and 
not even recognize it's coming from beer to be like, well, I don't do that because I'm good. I don't do that because I'm a Christian. And like, it's a super unhealthy either or, and that's what we do as adolescents. If I wasn't that, I would do it in some other way. The church just gave me uh, a framework for, um, for doing mm-hmm. it and really emboldened and encouraged it uh, without it um, intending to do, do something nefarious. Yeah, well, I, I think the church or, or, or many kinds of, of churches, or let's say most uh, even, um, c- can, can give so much more weight to those experiences that may just be natural or normal. Um, if it's not the sex stuff, mm-hmm. it is, yeah. like you said, uh, cursing. It's, it's a constant feel of, um, w- was I not nice enough to that person? Was I a bad witness? Did I get upset too quickly? Do yeah. I, am I honoring my parents? Or, like Whatever the, the things are. Um, yeah. And I think it's because in, in a lot of evangelical traditions, um, there's this idea, like, even if people wouldn't ever come out and say this is like part of their theology, it's like when you accept Jesus or whatever, or like are baptized or whatever the, the demarcation is for you, um, from then on, it's like we're perfect or we're, we're washed in the blood and like we don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. And, and so if you do, it feels weird or you feel like shame. It, it's part of what I personally have appreciated a lot more the last five years specifically, if not the last like 12 years, generally, even when we were doing some of this at Mosaic, it, the liturgical traditions that that have confession um, as a community weekly or even, or as personally daily, like there's a, there's some, some ways that I'm not maybe who I'm supposed to be, um, but we're all in that boat. And we're we're coming again to like a place of acknowledging that and, and also saying some of that's like, okay, or expected. And um, as opposed to like, I got to lock all of this down forever and never make any mistakes. Um, but, but, but mm. what was, what was moving on mm. out of that? Like for you or like, how did you carry all that you were becoming as an adolescent into your college experience and, and like first career, what does what the transition look like into adulthood? I started a church at 19. Uh, at 19 and off of college. And, you know, all of my friends today, I hear them talk about all of their crazy stories in college and the fun stuff that they did. And like you had said earlier, this maturation, growing up, exploring process. And uh, I started a church. Uh, and uh, it failed miserably after uh, five or six months. And then a few months after that, I became a youth minister at a really big church, had a big youth ministry, did that for three years. And then, uh, by the way, I also started uh, dating uh, the the woman who became my wife um, two months into college. So essentially, I like I left high school, became a full grown adult, like sign me up, give me a full time responsibility, give me full time relationship and let me be a full time student. I mean, I'm, I'm, I am, uh, I am a full-blown adult at uh, 19 years old. No one asked me to do that. That was just yeah. the path forward as I could best discern it. Do you think, in hindsight, that was because you thought it was the the right thing to do, or there was a, a sense of like there was a need that you were trying to fill, or, or do you think some of that maybe could have even come from from fear that like if I don't lock myself down or go ahead and commit, commit, commit in like all these directions that, that maybe I am going to like stray. Yes. 
Uh, I mean, it was, it's all of us. It is really all of those things coalescing unconsciously. Consciously, I had a switch had flipped and it felt like in some ways I was no longer performing or the, or I became a method actor and the performance became so ingrained in my personality that I was passionate those people who aren't doing it, I'm not trying to be good. It's because I fucking believe because I'm, we're going to make a difference because this generation, I'm going to have an impact. I'm not going to waste my time in college, you know, fucking around doing this or that, or I would say screwing around doing this or that. Um, because, because, because I know the truth, because like, like I, was, I read Bonhoeffer and like, like all, all of this stuff was really coalescing in some sort of like, mental and emotional and spiritual way like it just but it that's a lot no one forced this upon me like you know nobody said this is who uh i need to be and i like signed the agreement this was my way of putting together the world in a way that made sense for me and gave me a kind of reward and a way of viewing myself and understanding my place in the world that I gladly at that time surrendered all of those other, the pressures of all of those other things to accept this type of um, reward or way of life that made sense to me at the time. So like, yeah, I'm, I'm responsible. It's, 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 um, and then, and meanwhile, through all of this brewing is this like addictive, this person that doesn't, yet know how to live life on life's terms and finding ways to mute or turn down the volume and to try to deal with the gap or the discrepancy between the me that I projected, the me that I wanted to be, and the shadow that was behind me, that I had a very, very difficult time understanding or working with. Or just not even that. I should begin with like accepting. Mm -hmm. Had a hard time accepting that. And, and how does that start to? I mean, I, I, this, is, I theology, this is really man. where like timelines get messy because you, you you have kids uh, in there and you're 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 moving and planning a church, but like keeping the keeping this part of the story or like the story above the story. Um how does the continuation of building that scaffolding or like setting those things up, how does it start to kind of fall apart? Or like, what, what, what are those narratives for you? Yeah. So graduated from college, got married a month later, um, finished work at this church in Waco, uh, moved to Amarillo, Texas, uh, lived six years in Amarillo as a youth minister at a big church there and, uh, was good at that. Like I was a, I was a good, I was a good youth minister. It bored me. Um, after a couple of years of doing that, I started getting really bored. Um, and that's when I moved to Austin. So that was the end of 2001, really the beginning of 2002 started mosaic and kind of underneath that scalping or behind the scalping, I had started to have kids. I, my son was born, Jackson was born in 1999. So uh, a couple of years left in Amarillo and then Allison was born soon after we moved um, to Austin. And 
at some point, um, my, my ex-wife, Emily, who I love and adore, and she loves me and adores me. She's, uh, uh, she's like a sister to me. <laughs> and, uh, and we were driving back from moving our daughter into her apartment in her, or her house after her sophomore year or beginning of her sophomore year, right a year ago. And I was talking to her about our shared history together. We were talking about it. And she said something like, you know, I had the feeling that I was never the priority, that it was, it was always like the church. And, and uh, I don't know if that's true or not. But that's the way I felt. And almost like, without any conscious, I was like, oh yeah, that's, that was definitely the case. Like most certainly work was the most important thing in my life. And then closely behind that, it was my, my children. Um, there's a lot of issues there at that. And I, as much as I love Emily and as much as she loves me, um, uh, it wasn't just that I was a workaholic, but I certainly was because work was like all the work that I did in high school to get the attention that I got, or not just the attention, the affirmation, the sense of self. And, and when I was in college, like work was the way that I did that. And it was my, in many ways, the answer, my answer to the question that was asked of me in, in, in uh, my adolescence. And so that in, in parenting, being a father, um, I was really, I think, unconsciously focused on doing, succeeding at the two things I felt like my dad um, could have done better. And that was my dad left, pastor, stopped pastoring a church. He started a church. I mean, our, our, I love my father. He passed away last year. Um, and I've done a lot of work since he's died. I and mean, really before on our relationship. And he loved me. I love him. But he was gone, like we talked about already a lot in my childhood. Um, and I look back at my life and in so many ways, our lives, my life parallels his, um, he started a church in his late twenties or early thirties. He pastored that church. Um, he got burnt out pastoring that church. Um, he went into like some other work. And so I think my adulthood was about doing what my father didn't finish and then being the kind of father that I wanted out of my father. And so while I was really focused on church, I was also really focused on being a, a good dad, not a particularly good husband, but a, a, a good father. And so anyway, to go back to that question that you asked like 25 minutes ago <laughs> that started this, I think all of this stuff was happening on the surface. And then again, below, I have no idea how to live life on life's terms. And quite frankly, I'm getting in through this stuff as a youth minister and then starting a church. And I, again, all unconscious, but I should have never fucking been a pastor. Like that's not what I wanted to do with my life. I really did not want to be a youth minister. I really didn't want to be, I chose it, but I, my way of coping with living a life that wasn't mine was by checking out. Um, and eventually that led to drinking. And doing that really privately and secretly, but as a means of me um, not living life on life's terms or not willing to. 
And I, part of that, it's not that simplistic either. Like I'm an addict. There's so many other, um, there's so many other variables involved in that. That was certainly part of it. So I used to say that I drank myself when I was in like meetings. I would say I, to, to like add some weight to my story that I drank myself out of a career and out of a, a marriage. And I think more honestly, I was living a life that I wasn't my soul that didn't resonate with my soul that wasn't mine and my way of coping with that was drinking so it was a uh, um you know his hindsight and whatnot there's clarity now there'll be more clarity in 20 years and um i made good decisions and i made a bunch of bad decisions through that process but definitely i found ways um to deal with that gap and to turn down the volume. And then that created more shame. And so the me that I was projecting that you saw, that everybody else saw, and the me that was in the shadows, what I did to fill that gap was to drink and nurse in certain ways. And then by doing that, that created more and more of a gap which created more misery. And I just was, um, I had picked a life that created, that I created, that created a lot of disjointedness for me and that I am the one responsible for creating that, that life. Like that's on, you know, that was on me. Mm. Hey there, it's Sam again. I'm pulling away just for a second from today's story. Don't worry, we'll get back there in a minute. Uh, seemed like a good time to remind you that you can have this kind of experience with me too. You owe it to yourself or to family or, or friends to take a couple of hours and chronicle your life story in your voice. Then you can choose whether you want to keep it for yourself or have it published like this one. Uh, maybe that's all you want to do with Oak Roots, but if it would help to keep meeting for a session or two to talk through some of what comes up, I can help with that too. Just go to oakroots.net to see services available and what fees look like, or you can email me at sam at oakroots.net. Okay, let's get back to the talk. Th thank you again for, for walking through some of that kind of, kind of thing, Don. Um, it is it is interesting for me to to be someone who um came into your story a little later uh in it uh you and i met in january of 2005 and i was working with you and, and for you by the end of that year um and then you you leave mosaic in 2012 i think we, we, I think we had like seven, eleven, years, seven or End eleven. 11. Okay. Um, and I guess I can understand or see some of that kind of thing now, like l looking back. Um, but there was so much of it that, that that wasn't clear. You know, I guess because because there were things that were were maybe kind of being hidden, sure. purposefully, or that you were shameful about. Um. But I'm curious, but because I I know, and I want you to to continue to, to tell the story. I know it's um, it's some amount of time after you step away from Mosaic before 
your marriage uh, ends. And then it's a, another amount of time before you get sober. Like what, what were those years where things looked like they were going well and we were running something that, that was unique and creative and, and that people, um, people yeah. really appreciated. Like w what was it like for you in, in those years and, and how did you ultimately make the decision to, to step away from that even before you were, there were other, other big things happening in life? Yeah. So there definitely was a, some joy in creating, co-creating mosaic and pastoring it and having a, blank can canvas to be able to paint upon and do things in ways that were different and resonated with with people i'm proud of a lot of the you know of a lot of the work that we we did together and the impact that it had on on people's lives and for the people that were a part of the community the friendships that came out of that um and so even though I was struggling. It's kind of like being a parent and struggling where I can still look at my child. Um, and not that mosaic was my child. That's not a perfect, accurate um, metaphor, but still be like, man, I'm hurting, but I'm so goddamn proud of this kid, you know? And so I, I and love this kid and want what's best for this kid. And I'm excited about what this kid is doing in life and how they're growing and where they're imperfect. I, I like their imperfections. And um, I think we owned that well um, as Mosaic. And I think partly because I was internally so broken, I wanted to pastor a community where we could honor um, brokenness and allow space for it without like instant before and after healing, but, but still lurch towards healing. And I look now at my involvement in recovery and see how so much of what I was hoping to do, I think, uh, and what I was hoping we would do is like what I see a lot of 12 step programs do. And that's like build and broker authentic community based upon a common brokenness and a common solution. Um, or a common hope. And um, that's one of the things I love about recovery is that the only way you get in is if you're fucked up. There are no grandchildren of alcoholics. Like you, you, well, there are, and they have their own wounds, but you're only, or a child, you're only, you only get in if you have, if, if you are powerless and there are consequences to your powerlessness. And um, so, Anyway, there is some some you know some parts of mosaic that I think were really really proud of the the work that the thing that we built and built with others and um, but the weight for me and the the fact that I I my you know addictions don't improve they and they're not. They typically don't stay still. They get worse and worse and worse. So the me in 2004 and the me in 2009, the me in 2009 was a, if you could visually see it, I would have, metaphorically, I had lost weight and I was, um, and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't eating right. Like all the things when you see like a drug addict, you know, from, 
year one to year five, like emotionally that was happening in me. And I'm doing this. This is happening while I'm in charge, quotation marks, of like being a responsible present pastor. Um, and so that took a cost. It's funny. Huh, I don't I don't know what kind of funny. It's interesting that I when I left Mosaic in 2011, I used the metaphor that of the giving tree. And this that if you remember the book by Shel Silverstein, it's this book we all read in childhood of this tree that had a relationship with the boy. And the boy grew, he kept coming back to the tree, and the tree kept giving and kept giving and kept giving until it was a stump. It's also this, yeah. I've also used that metaphor one other time in my my life. Um, and that made sense to me. And over the past seven or eight years, I realized, Jesus, man, that that tree is the most fucked up, saddest, um, Messiah complex tree of any tree ever. Because that fucking tree needs to say, no, boy, like... I'm not giving anymore. I need to take care of myself. So the tree ends up as a stump and it's a hero in the story. And it's really this so dysfunctional relationship between this tree and this person. And um, I had no boundaries. I had very little self-respect or self-worth. And I kept following the script as best I could the way I thought I should follow it. And yeah, I ended up as a, a stump but it wasn't some sort of like romantic heroic thing. It was me just being sick and sickening myself into a stump by the end. And when I left at the beginning of that year, beginning of 2011, Emily, my uh, wife was finishing up a sabbatical that she had taken from Mosaic. And it was like a eight or 12 week sabbatical. She needed time to step away. Beginning of 2011, we ate uh, at a restaurant in a Mexican restaurant and we were talking about I asked her at the restaurant I was like it's been about 12 weeks and it's time for you to come back to Mosaic so what's that going to look like and she said I'm not coming back and I was thought well no what like you this is a you this is sabbatical and a sabbatical is something you take and then you you finish the sabbatical to which she responded, I never called it a sabbatical. You call it whatever you want, but I left the church and I'm not coming back. And I couldn't even comprehend what that meant. And or I could begin to comprehend that meant like how what anyway, and the cost of it. And um so we we worked through that some and I said, Okay, well, if you aren't gonna do this, I can't. I can't do it. And she graciously agreed to play the role for the rest of the year as I communicated to the community that I was leaving and then was taking time to figure out what the hell I would do after um, I was a pastor and all I'd been doing was ministry for 19 years um, with a degree in religion. So, and I, I, I've, I've told Emily, I told her this last year that that was what one of the biggest gifts anyone's ever given me in my life. And it's funny because the biggest gifts in my life 
are the things that hurt, that didn't just hurt, that felt like my life was ending when they were being given. Um, but it was such a gift. And I did think I would probably be dead or just a like, I don't know what where I would be now if she had not insisted that she was done, if she had not stood up for herself yeah. and her unwillingness to be that tree. <laughs> um, she had the self-respect and self-worth to say, I'm not going to be a stump. And I was more than willing to become a stump um, for the sake of the call, as Stephen Curtis Chapman would encourage. So anyway, that was kind of the, the, um, the end for me. And it was, um, it should have happened probably three or four years earlier. But thank, thankfully, it happened when it happened, and um, I was able to to get out. One more time, say about Emily. I have so much respect, and I've communicated this to her. I have so much respect and admiration for her, and for her sense of boundaries, um, and for her um, speaking her truth the way that she did. Like, uh, really impressed, and I will be forever grateful. So, anyway, there's that. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to say too. Like to just affirm that I think Emily comes off really well in that story, um, and plays this this role that ends up giving um, several people, including you and I, and maybe dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of others, like this gift that she might not even know it of, of at the time of of setting a boundary. Of, yeah, and it would be different if. Uh, maybe you wouldn't agree. Like I, I would think there would be some situations where that would not have been right or responsible or like a faithful thing to do. But, but the situation was so broken. Uh, like uh, what it, how, how the whole thing, the yeah. house of cards you mentioned earlier, how the whole thing had been set up um, and, and the ways that by that point in yeah. mosaic, it really was like dependent on your and my ego. Um and and skills and just grit yeah. than it was the you know the the spirit or or like a like I, I'm willing to own all of that kind yeah. of stuff at this point in my life and I think her calling that out um oh, yeah. is is really is is really important um so I, I agree with you what what is it so so we sure. talked about childhood and adolescence and the beginnings of of these wounds or things that'll that'll you know, play into to your life up to like late thirties or early forties. Like I, I, I want to leave, I want to leave plenty of room for, um, the, the what next, like, um, kind of components and, and get to where you are now. So kind of walk, walk us through what the, the last, uh, 12, 10 to 12 years have looked like knowing there's still some, some things there that are tough, that you've, that you've got to come to terms with or that are still a ahead of you in your story. That's where my story, at least from my perspective, gets interesting. And um, yeah, so left Mosaic in 2011. I go in to work in technology companies, um, various forms of Austin startups. Uh, drinking gets worse and worse. I become more and more emotionally removed. Emily left, we divorced, uh, and sep we, well, we separated in September of 2013. And 
when we separated, it was over. Um, and, and that was, yeah, we, it was over. So there was a, 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 a finitude in that or there and a grace in that finitude of like, there's no trying to save this or, you know, it was, it was, it was over. So I moved out 2013 and, uh, for the next year, for the first time ever, I was, yeah, I wasn't a pastor. I wasn't married. I was free and quote, and like, and wildly depressed. So that year, the end of 2013 and most of 2014 is just a blur in a lot of ways. Lots of drinking, um, lots of sowing of wild oats, being a parent every other week um, and showing up, you know, for events in the weeks that my kids weren't with me. I got arrested for my first DWI in January of 2013. And felt a lot of shame, but just brushed it off for the most part, because I wasn't ready to stop drinking and I wasn't ready to face life. So continue to drink. Um, and that got worse and worse consequences, emotional, psychological, spiritual consequences got worse and worse. I became less and less of a human until 2014. And God, these are stories that I share in recovery, and it feels weird sometimes when I share them outside, but I'll go ahead. I, I had broken up with the woman that I was dating, or maybe she broke up with me. It's blurry. Uh, in o- October of 2014, and I knew my drinking was like at fault and uh, or a big part of it. So I was depressed. I came home from work. I didn't know what to do. It was a Tuesday night. I didn't know what people did. I no longer knew what people did on Tuesday nights if they didn't have a family with them and then, um, and, and they didn't drink. And so went across the street, got a sandwich, didn't know what to do when I was waiting for my sandwich to come out. So I was like, all right, I guess I'll get a drink. And then five hours later, I was in my car. I don't, I walked across the street to get the sandwich. I don't know when and where and how I got in my car, but on the way back in my parking garage, I hit a parked car that hit another parked car that hit another parked car, um, drove up into a parking spot in my parking garage, passed out of my car, woke up hearing the name, my last name on an intercom. I look in the rearview mirror. There's a security officer behind my car. So still quite drunk. I get out of my car. I walk past the security officer with as much confidence as I can muster, walk into my apartment. And then I run. I don't want to go into my apartment because if the cops come, then that would be my probably my second DWI. So I run through my apartments to the apartment complex behind me. Uh, and I pass out in a ditch between two portable buildings and wake up like three or four hours later. Have I told you this story? No. Um, no. And if I'm betraying that by my facial expressions, you you probably figure that out. In my mind, in my mind, you, it was your first DWI or like maybe you haven't gotten there yet, but I I know one of them happened on like I-35 or in Round Rock or something. And that's all I've ever really known. So yeah, I got this, I I got this DWI back in January of 2013 and um, no real consequences. I mean, it was still in the court system at this point. I continue to drink then I have this accident where there is no DWI involved. This is October, 2014. I wake up from the ditch. It's close to dusk. 
I'm sorry, close to dawn, I have enough awareness to be like, shit, what I did was a problem. So I went to the cars that I hit. I left a note on the cars. I sent an email to the apartment, like the leasing office, said, hey, I was, uh, I don't know what I said, but essentially I'm responsible and I'm happy to take care of this. Um, and that next morning when I woke up the severe hangover, I thought I probably, it's probably time to give AA a shot. And by that time I was ready. I mean, it's interesting because I have this journal that I was writing in for that year and it's hard going back, reading that, that journal, but I was getting ready emotionally, I think, in the months leading up to that, knowing there needed to be some sort of change and like transformational change that was out of my ability to manage or control. Because I was trying to manage the change in my life and I couldn't, I can't manage change in my life. I couldn't at that point. So I had this bottom, uh, rock bottom experience. I go to my first AA meeting uh, that night, Tuesday night. There were like a, probably a hundred people in that meeting. I felt I was really afraid, but I also knew that as soon as how it works from the big book was read, it was like, I felt hope and I felt hope for the first time in a couple of decades, like real hope, not like the kind of hope I feel after the Cowboys win their first game of the season. I'm like, Oh, maybe this could be a Super Bowl year, but it's not going to happen. It's like, that's the kind of hope that I've been living with my whole life. This kind of enthusiasm that maybe, maybe this was a more foundational outside of myself kind of hope. The next morning I went to the meeting at the same clubhouse. It was a seven thirty meeting. And that meeting is the one that like really changed my life. The, um, the people that were there, the um, what I heard in that meeting, the relationships that I began building. It's weird. I could talk about this all the time. It's the first time I've gotten emotional about it in a while. But um, the man that sponsored that, um, that just happened to chair that meeting, there was nothing special about him. His name's Tom. But I went up to him after the meeting and asked if he would sponsor me for the next three months. I just felt alive. I, mean, I was I was still afraid I was going to drink again, but I didn't. I was I was working the steps. I had new tools in my life that I had. Man, I just I had lived life with this victim mentality, and I've given up so much. And I'm my my thinking was so sick. My view of the world and of myself was so fragmented. I was so isolated and I had based everything I had done in my life on how people perceived me. And for the first time in my life, no one cared that I was a pastor or no one cared if I was good or bad. I was just an alcoholic. My, um, and it was that, like I alluded to earlier, it was that powerlessness over alcohol that is all that mattered that and the fact that i had a desire not to drink so genuine relationships and healing began to emerge out of that january of 2015 three months sober it's actually 93 days sober going to meetings almost every day i'm at a cvs pharmacy monday night standing in line 
to get something. I can't remember what. And the thought crossed my mind. I think I'll drink again. And it came out of nowhere. I, it felt like it came out of nowhere. I can look back and I've done lots of work around it, but it felt like it came from nowhere. And the, that thought quickly followed with, uh, fuck it, I'll drink again. I'll drink tonight. I'm not going to have a drink. I know me. I want to, what I want is oblivion. I want to erase everything for a few hours. So um, I went from that because CVS has shitty beer. So I went from there to a place that had good beer. I bought three or four or six packs, went home. I was going to drink and then I was going to go to the, an AA meeting the next morning, my 730 meeting, get my desire chip and then be sober for the rest of my life. That's how I had planned it out in my mind. Um, I drank all that night, woke up the next morning, drank all that day, drank through Tuesday night, passed out for a few hours, woke up Wednesday, drank all day Wednesday, finally got some cabin fever. It was January, it was cold. And uh, I went out to, I think, a couple of bars. Then I finally, when I got arrested, yeah, I was on I-35 headed north towards Round Rock. I don't, I don't, I have no idea where I was going. It's the opposite direction of my house. Thank God I get pulled over in Travis County. Anyway, as soon as the lights came on in the review mirror, I felt relief that it was, that this stint was finally over and a deep and profound sadness that not about me getting arrested again, although that terrified me, but just that I had these three months of reprieve and I was terrified that it was some sort of like sick, sick gift from God that I would have three months of sobriety and hope and then was going to be a fucked up. I just, because the life that I was living before then, I couldn't know, I, I couldn't sustain that life in 2014. I couldn't sustain that. And I don't, it would have ended in death somehow, I think, um, or prison. And so there's a relief and the lights come on. Um, I, as soon as I get thrown in the cop car, it's so, I am like weeping in the backseat of the cop car. Um, I'm a fucking mess. And yeah, I get thrown back in jail second time. And I think, like, I wish a goddamn pastor of a church and I'm in jail again. Like, I just couldn't reconcile those things. And anyway, I'm in jail for about 36 hours that time. I get I get out of jail. And um, I go back to um, – that's a – get out of jail on – Thursday afternoon, Wednesday, sorry, Friday morning, I go back uh, to my 7.30 meeting. And that feels like, that meeting feels like a dream or a memory uh, that wasn't even mine. But it, the way I remember it, there were five or six people standing outside of the clubhouse in tears because they'd all heard what had happened. And they just hugged me, crying and telling me how glad they were I was back and how much courage it takes to be back. And I'm like, courage? What are you talking about courage? I'm a piece of shit that drank again. There was no judgment. There was no, we're so glad you're back, but 
haven't you? Hope you've learned your lesson. None of that. It was just the thing that I had been preaching for 20 years, I experienced for the first time in my life. And uh, I was I was in that meeting and I felt safe, but I was so terrified, like, oh my God, what if like what if I I was afraid I was gonna lose my kids. I was afraid that I was gonna be thrown in jail for six months or 12 months or maybe go to prison because of my second DWI. I was afraid I was gonna lose my job, which meant losing my career again, which meant probably working at a Jiffy Loop for the rest of my life. And you know what? Like in retrospect, that would have been okay too if I worked at Jiffy Loop for the rest of my life. But all of those fears, but the biggest fear I had in that room on that Friday morning was, what if I can't get sober? Like, what if I just am a drunk? And this woman named Madeline shared uh, in the meeting, not even towards me, she was just sharing, but she she said, you know what? It's 8.03 a.m. It's a Friday morning, January, 23rd, 2015, and right here, right now, it's all okay. Every Right here, right now, in this moment, we're all okay. The past doesn't mean anything. The future doesn't exist. Right here, right now, you're safe. Right here, right now, you're taken care of. Right here, right now, you're okay. And that sentiment, I realized all of my fears were present tense, like they've always been, or past tense. In the moment, right now, I am okay. And for me, so much of being sober and getting sober, getting sober and being sober was about not rushing off into the future where I could be in jail, or like, I am okay right now at this moment back into, I was loved back into sobriety. Um, in AA, we talk a lot about there being a power greater than ourselves. And whatever you call that power is fine. Whatever you believe about that power is fine. And I believe that in my core. But at the end of the day, I don't, Don, this just is for Don, doesn't need a, just a power greater than himself. He needs a love greater than himself. And I experienced that love through other alcoholics who loved me back into sobriety. And that began, that was my last drink, January 21st, 2015, by the grace of God. And I don't say that lightly. Um, And that's where my life began. Um, I think this is a long story, but I think the, the last part of it for now is a month later, I was back at work. I didn't get fired. I was back at work. And I had some red flags come up that morning that made me, or um, that I, in response to Googled my name. And I see this article on KVU.com, which is one of the news stations that had just been published, the article. And the headline of the article was area pastor arrested for second DWI. They have a mugshot. And it had my a my alcohol, my blood level, which was point three times illegal, more than three times illegal limit. Had a link to the church that I had pastored, even though I hadn't pastored in two and a half or three years. And I um I called my sponsor 
when as soon as I saw that, I mean, the world, literally the world was spinning. I thought I was about to faint. I thought I was going to throw up. Because the, like, I thought I could just keep all of this a secret. And I had failed at being me. You know, this projection that I put up about who I was and being a pastor and a family guy and, uh, you know, this and that, like, that was a sham. And it's public news of some sort. So I call my sponsor and I'm like, this is so reflective of my mindset in that part of my life and before. But I was like, okay, Tom, you know, if I'm really good now, I'm a month sober and I'm really doing well. And I, maybe I can start a blog. And in that blog, I can start writing about recovery and about, you know, like getting ahead of the story, so to speak. And my sponsor listens really politely and he says, oh, Don, I can hear the PR machine just roaring its engines. And uh, all that matters is how are you going to stay sober today? That's all that matters. How are you going to stay sober today? And um, we talked about that. And the next morning I woke up and I was scared shitless about the article. And he said, oh, Don, all that matters is how are you going to stay sober today? And for the next couple of weeks, it was it was that. And I realized that that article was as important in my life as the DWIs were because it was alcohol was but a symptom for me. It was as much about my ego and my that false self that I've been projecting and that script that I've been following. And I needed it to die and not just die. I needed to die a proper Flannery O'Connor murdering, ghastly death that was for the whole world to see so that I could finally like come to terms with it myself. And that was a gift that gave me, I needed to die so that I could be resurrected. And it's so I had preached resurrection my whole life. I preached death and resurrection my whole life and no fucking clue what it meant. Um, until uh, somewhere along midlife's journey, um, I experienced a kind of darkness in the woods that led to death of my own doing. And uh, anyway, that, that, that was, um, I think that was kind of the beginning of, of my life of the second half of my life was kind of that season. I'm, I don't know if this is the right word to use or like what you're comfortable with, but I, I, I want to say, and forgive me if it, if it's hurtful, I want to say that I'm, that I'm glad, but I, I think the word is like, is grateful, yeah. you know, like the, I'm, I'm so grateful that that whatever needed to happen happened. And, and I'm only kind of comfortable saying that because, because it seems like you are too, or that it's one of those things you mentioned that uh, one of the best gifts in your life that, that was hard as hell to receive or, um, but, but, but that's because I've gotten to, I've gotten to see you for, for the last eight years or, or whatever it is, almost like we have a, a whole new relationship or, or like you are a, I'll extend your metaphor. Like you are a new creation um, where there's still the wounds from before and the experiences from before and the ways that we can process our, our shared woundings t together, or even the ways we wounded each other. 
in the past, but that we also get to experience this kind of yeah, new, sure. new life, new relationship with each other. Um, so, so thank you. It's like the third or fourth time I've said, thank you for that vulnerability and, and openness. Um, mm -hmm. what, what, what next? Like what, wh how, how do we get, yeah. to, how do you get to today? What does being present look like for you today? Kind of catch me up on, on the next steps. Yeah. Yeah, I will gladly. Um, I do want to like go back and say one thing about, cause I don't know if, if okay. this will be something other people listen to or not, but like, I think about mosaic and I think about um, our relationship and working together and the cost on the community and on people's lives of having a pastor and a friend, a parent, a husband, you know, who was so sick and so out of control and so unwilling to do the work in their lives, their life to get to, to get well, that it impacted and afflicted a community without them maybe even being fully aware that what was happening, you, um, the, the cost on mosaic, especially my last two or three or four years there. Um, so I just, I, I, I don't have, that's not a weight for me. Um, I've gone through as best I can the immense process, but I just want to like, before I move forward, acknowledge that, like, I don't want it to come across as like, I'm this, I was this wounded um, victim and um, uh, suffering. It was, I, I inflicted and caused suffering and conflict and pain because I was unwilling and incapable. No, I will say unwilling to um, do the work to get well. Mm. Um, moving out of, uh, so that was 2015, beginning of 2015. And for the next three or four years, it was me getting sober, me developing new and meaningful life changing friendships and relationships through, um, recovery relationships. I never thought I would get to have practicing rigorous honesty in ways that I never envisioned being able to practice, having the courage to practice. Um, finding teachers and like, I mean, there's this union therapist named James Hollis, who's written a number of books that deeply impacted me and helped me become, helped me find who I who I really am. I mentioned Flannery O'Connor, T.S. Eliot, um, Rilke. Uh, there are others I'm drawing a blank to, but there was, brought darn blank on, but there was this collection of witnesses for me that, I mean, I like, I needed the big book of AA, but I just needed these certain dead people. <laughs> to um, rise up, not all of them dead, to rise up and to provide me a path forward. And um, James Hollis isn't dead yet, but he will be someday like the rest of us. Um, and that that work 
I started seeing a therapist the day before, two days before my first ever AA meeting. And that therapist was with me until 2021 when he retired. And I saw him just about every week. So the work of therapy, uh, just a lot of of tools in my life, a lot of people in my life that um, um, helped me learn how to live. And um, so what's, uh, let me tell one story and then I can take like, I can like use your guidance to, uh, um, to kind of like frame out the, the last few years. But in September of 2015, I was moving from that apartment to a house in Austin, a small little home that I was renting. And uh, I had some friends help, but I was making the last load by myself. I was borrowing a pickup truck, had a few things in it. I'm driving over to my house and I thought, oh shit, I don't have a kitchen table. The apartment that I lived in on Burnett Road had like a kind of a, well, ironically enough, like a bar or an island that we all sat around. And I moved into that place for my divorce. I had no money. And it wasn't like I was going to be like poor and desolate for the rest of my life. But for the next few months, credit cards are maxed out. Literally a dollar fifty-seven or a dollar fifty-nine in my checking account. And um, like a dollar and some quarters in my ashtray in the car. And that was all I had. And I'm wondering, how am I going? So I, I would like to have a table for my kids in this new house. There's not much furniture, but I don't want Jackson and Allison and me sitting crisscross applesauce in the kitchen eating on paper plates. But so this wasn't the church part of me, the church part of me, but I, I could hear the AA part of me say, you know, yeah, if you have a need, pray. And then at the end of the prayer, ask that God's will be done. And so the like pastor part of me that hated those kind of prayers submitted to the AA voice in my ear. And I was like, all right, fuck it. God, I need a kitchen. I would like to have a kitchen table. Um, so if there's any way that that could happen, that would be cool. That will be done. Not mine. And I swear to God, four minutes later, I am pulling onto St. Louis Street up to my house. And not my next door neighbor, but the neighbor next to him is carrying out a fucking kitchen table from their garage and setting it on the driveway uh, at the edge of the street. And I get out of my car. I walk over and I'm like, you know, what's up with this with the with the table? And he said the last tenants had moved out and they had left the table. And five and a half minutes after praying that prayer. I am carrying this goddamn kitchen table into my my house. And other than just grace, the message to me in that was, I'm taken care of. You know, like, whatever it is, like, I'm going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I am, I am taken care of. And that, like, that, anyway, that, that table has has uh and the grace of that table has has um guided me or been with me i should say for the past eight years yeah and and so in in 2019 i've been working now for SaaS companies um doing like partnership development and sales and the company that i was working for in august of 2019 um uh 
had a hostile takeover and um, within 24 hours, the, the company I was working for was over. And all my colleagues who are great, 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 great people were all just like going and getting jobs at other SaaS software companies, you know, engineers going to get work at engineering companies and marketers getting jobs uh, at other like Mars marketers at other um, software companies. But something in me was like, I, I need to, I need to just wait and see what happens. And so I waited and I listened and I realized that this was happening for me, not to me. And it was really intentional about, I was doing some contracting work, but I hate working for technology companies. It, at that point, it was starting to rot away my soul. And I'm very grateful for the opportunities I had too, but it was just, the time was ending. And um, I didn't know what I wanted to do with the second half of my life. And so I took a couple of months and very intentionally worked through a lot of reflection exercises, a lot of writing and journaling, um, um, being very intentional about questions I was asking myself, exploring my childhood, um, working with my therapist and others, reading lots of books. And that's when. I mean, you and I worked together at Mosaic. Like, I used to think that I was, my vocation was ministry. And I realized that I'm an artist, like I'm a creative. And that ministry was a container that held that vocation. And so, sadly, the things that got me most excited in ministry was not counseling people or leading people to the Lord or you know, whatever. It was developing art installations. It was working on the seasonal aspect and like, how are we going to do Advent and what creative thing are we going to do in liturgy? Um, it was figuring out which films we were going to show in the background of, you know, a uh, installation or a sermon. It was when I got to preach and focus simply on storytelling. And I look back when I was a youth minister and the things that made me happiest was the dumb youth videos, the funny videos we do for Wednesday night or making the announcement sheet, even though I had an executive assistant whose job was to make the announcement sheets. And I certainly didn't have time to do it, but I, I did it because I liked the graphic design aspect. And it was almost like the end of the usual suspects when it's like you begin to piece all together all the things that this character has been talking about. And then it's like, oh my God, it's Kaiser Sose. For me, it was like, oh my God. Like suddenly there is this key to understanding this jumbled map of my life. And um, I had been saying for years and years and years, if I could do it all over again, I'd have gone to film school. And in October, September of 2019, I was like, well, fuck it. Like I live in Austin. There's Austin School of Film is here. They have a digital filmmaking class. Let's just go have fun and take an eight-week film course. Um, and I did. And three weeks into that film course, on Tuesday night, I'm driving back to my place. And I pull over. At this point, I just started dating Natalia, who is um, engaged to and is the love of my life. Um, 
And I feel so grateful. I am in such gratitude for her and our relationship. And um, we had just started dating. I I was driving home from this film class. I had to pull over off the side of the road. I was weeping because I was like, oh my God, this is what I want to do. Like, it was like, I'm not, I wish I felt that type of like calling or drawing to ministry. Um or anything else in life, but it was like a road, road to Damascus experience. Um, and, uh, um, all of the, all, anyway, all of this stuff, all of the things, all of my skills, all of my gifts, all of my passion, all of these like hundreds, maybe not hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of hours of watching film, like all of it all kind of coalesced into this. And I, uh, over a four or five week period, um, wrote, um, produced, I should say co-wrote, co-wrote our mutual friend Chris helped with the writing, um, produced, casted, um, and directed, then edited this short film called The Lesser Known Rules of Werewolves. And, um, it was a life-giving experience for me. Um, and so I made a couple of short films over the next few years with friends. And the way I kind of describe those short films is that I made movies in the backyard, in my backyard with a couple of buddies. And they were fun, really fun things, projects to work on. But then I had this opportunity last year with a script that I was working on um, to have some budget to have some producers and a crew of about 30 people um, and to shoot this, this, this film that I wrote and directed in, um, in LA in December. And then one thing leads to another. And uh, now I live in Salt Lake city and uh, um, was at a film festival this weekend as a, as a judge and, and I'm um, finishing up this film that uh, we shot in December. It's in post-production has about three weeks left in post-production um, before it's in film festivals next year. I'm finishing up a script now to a, a film that uh, I'll shoot in January or February. I'm working with uh, a writer on the film that we've just finished to develop a, a feature length um, and or episodic version of it that we're going to shop to Producers and studios, along with our producers, um, I'm building out an agency, a commercial agency uh, here in Salt Lake with a partner. I work as a partnership person for a, a commercial creative agency in Venice and L.A. Um, part time uh, as a kind of a consultant, uh, a commercial that I co-wrote and uh, co-directed um for a uh, clean yerba mate was released today and i but i'm like not making like much money off of this stuff or anything but i'm on the path that i'm supposed to be on right now and it's been you know i've taken risks that i feel like were the right risks for me to take and it's kind of scary and whatever but i know that i'm on the path that i'm supposed to be on right now and i just have to use the word again a load of gratitude that I just get to do what I'm doing right now in my life. I never dreamed that I could be doing this 
I could have a partner in Italia that I'm home with. And then I have to be living the life uh, that I'm living today. It's a good story. What is how I want to respond? Like, n- n- not what, not meaning that it's, it's, um, that all of it was good <laughs> or, or like that it was fun to go through, but like it mm-hmm. is a story with highs and lows and, and loss and missteps and, and redemption and and include and grace that that comes from God or the universe or what or AA uh, other people in AA um, and what I love the most as your friend and as someone who who gets to sit with you in this in this story um, is that you're fifty and that and that you have probably so much life left like walking down this path and i i know you well enough to know that and i know this is part of being Um, being present in recovery like if that's not true and it's all done for you today it's still a really good story um and has all the has all the beauty that I, i just talked through but i can't wait as as your friend um as as a a person who loves a good story and and loves great movies and uh, and innovative uh, commercials for sparkling water. I watched it earlier today. Kim happened to mention. She's like, if you're talking to Don, you should see this. This just came out. It's incredible. I don't know how you made that or learned to do that. And I can't wait to see what you do next and then next and then next. And um, I'm honored to have been a a witness for the the last 18 years to to a part of that um and i I miss you i wish you weren't in salt lake but i'm so glad you're in salt lake yeah and uh we'll figure out how to see each other more and technology is pretty neat on on this front but i uh i wish we could hug but um i i am so glad that you've given me this time today and and we'll keep talking about what it, to whatever degree you you want it shared or comfortable with it shared or parts of it but i think it's going to be as all good stories are beneficial for for people to get to hear it or or see it or um or have a great story like fleshed out in front of them for them to be able to connect their own stories to and their own losses and missteps and beauty and grace too so we'll figure that out later but i'm glad i got to hang out for two hours with my buddy and i do thank you for this gift and for being a partner and a friend in the journey with me uh we're all just on the what does ron das say we're all just trying to help each other get home Mm. so thank you for helping me, you know, find my way home. And it's, I'm so grateful for our friendship, for your story, and for the story that's even being written right now in your life. And if there's anyone on the planet that has the right heart, soul, and skill set to walk people through their stories with grace and elegance and perspective, it's you and um, thank you for doing that with me today and i'm really excited for you as you move forward in this path but 
even more so or as much so others who get to tell their stories because you're so open, gifted, and receptive and are able to walk people to even help find their stories, which I think that's what a lot of this is about. It's telling our stories and that we, we find our stories as we, as we tell them. Yeah. Well, I thank you for your words too. Um, you are, uh, and continue to be a, an inspiration uh, to me. And as I think about the rest of my life and taking the same kinds of, or not the same kinds of risks, but like taking risks at all as you have, uh, and what it looks like to, to be middle-aged and, and to look about and to think about the continuation of life and the ways that I'm maybe more creative than I've given myself credit for or in the ways that I should, should take more risk. And this is a direct result. Like this is, this is, uh, kind of, kind of my version of that, at least in this season. Mm -hmm. So, sure. um, thanks for those words too. Um, okay. Well, I, there's a real okay. quick to, to close it all up. There's this, there's a Simone Vey quote where she says that, uh, or writes that there's this, that risk is an essential need of the soul and that the absence of risk produces a kind of boredom, boredom, which paralyzes in a different way from fear, but almost as much. Mm. And the more I've leaned into risk as I've gotten older, the scarier it's gotten. But in some ways, like, there's always going to be a table. Um, mm. And I, I, don't, I don't always see the table till I need it, but there's always going to be a table. And I used to say this about love. Uh, Mosaic, I don't, we, we'll, let's say there is a heaven and let's say there's a God in judgment and I'm leaning in heavily to the let's say part. But if there is on that stuff, then I don't want to hear what the hell, like, why did you not take risk? Why did you? Why were you, why were you so afraid? Like, did you not get the hint you're, you're taking care of? And so anyway, I'd rather, I'd rather go down risking too much than go down risking uh, too little. And yeah, it's harder as you get older in some ways, because we have more to lose, but we also have much more to gain. Yeah. No, I, I love it. I, I mean, uh there's some parables even about some of that kind of thing. And like, what, what did you do? Yeah. Why, how did, why did you yeah. squander this gift I gave you of life? Um, why did you squander this gift of your story? I had a mentor tell me a few years ago, who's older than I am. And, um, and I've heard this somewhere else. So maybe it's like a, a cliche or kind of self-help thing, but I like really lean into it. He says, no, he said, no one on their deathbed ever says they wish they'd risk less. Like they always say, yeah. I wish I had risked more. I wish I had taken more chances. Um, so like, I, yeah, I, I, I'm wanting to, 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 to risk. Um, maybe that's the the best way for, for us to end. Believe in there's, there's always going to be, a table. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to cut you off. Sorry. Did you have a response to that or something that? Well, I said that that quote was going to be the last thing, but I, I yeah, let me, I want let me say, tell this 
90 second, maybe two minute story. I've told you this offline. My, my dad passed away at 93 last year. And when I got to um, his place, my mom's place uh, with family, I'm going through a, a spiral notebook of addresses, family members, friends that we need to contact and let them know about his death, the funeral arrangements and whatnot. And I'm going through these addresses and uh, a couple of blank pages uh, at the end of the addresses, I noticed my dad's handwriting and it's writing that he had done in the previous months, probably within the last month or two before his death. And it's uh, four or five questions I think his heart doctor asked him to reflect on. And one of the questions was about his youth and him really sharing his story or reflecting on his story. And he talked about how for his whole life, he wanted to go to Baylor. And, um, but he couldn't, he was planning on it, but he couldn't because his, his, his brother died during World War II. He graduated high school in 1944, 45. His dad died his senior year in high school. He was the youngest of eight brothers and he had to stay home and work for seven or eight years, support his mom and go to night school to finish college. So he couldn't go to Baylor. So he writes about that, and I knew this story, and there's a couple other questions. And at the very end of this, he writes that um, he had suffered, He, I think his phrase was, mild-grade depression his whole life because the thing that he wanted most in life, which was go to Baylor in 1945, Charles Vanderslice in 2022 at 93 years old says he suffered depression his whole life because he didn't get the thing he wanted most and i i love my dad so much i don't know if there's a real corollary there i don't think depression is just connected back to us not getting to go to the college that we wanted to or you know missing out on the thing that we'd really dreamed about but my dad has given me a couple of gifts along the way that i don't think he knew he was giving but that was the last and the greatest of those gifts. And I, to your point, you said earlier, your therapist or mentor, I don't want to be on my deathbed. And look back and think, man, I wish I would have done that in my life. I wish I would have. Um, my dad couldn't. That was out of his control. But I don't want to, I don't and not to sound like Tony Robbins, but I don't want to, I don't want to lay on my Beth dead, my Beth dead or my deathbed, either one. And, um, and look back with regret because I didn't have the courage to take the risk or to, to do the thing or the risk, the, you know, uh, the, yeah, I just, so, you know, to infinity and beyond, we, we, we try, we fail, maybe we succeed, probably something there in between, but the, um, the joy is in the risk and in the travel. And I need to, you know, I want to hold on to that. Yeah. That's good. I'm glad you, you shared that. And I have the perfect way now to end, uh, which is uh, with a Norm MacDonald joke uh, on either his very last special. Oh, yeah. Did you watch uh, like that he shot during COVID, like as he was dying on his on a setup like this? I don't remember if it was yeah. that one or the one before, but he was talking more and more about oh, no, I didn't. death and, and his illness without us knowing he was ill you know, or, um, and he, and he says something, I don't remember the setup part, but he's like, people talk about what they say or what they regret or on their deathbed. And he's like, um, 
It's like, I, I, I think the first problem was you went and bought a deathbed. Um, so that's, that's just a, a, like um, to, to not buying a deathbed uh, and bad Norm MacDonald impersonations. But uh, thanks, man. No, that's good. That was actually a pretty good, that was a pretty good Norm impression. Okay. Yeah. I'll keep working on it. Also, I'll, uh, I'll see you soon somehow. Love you, buddy. Sounds good. Yeah, sounds good, my friend. Love you too, and thank you for this time. You done. Hi, it's Sam, and I've got one more thing before we end. Uh, you've heard how these talks go now. And so if you're interested in finding time with me to have a story so far session of your own, check out oakroots.net and book a time for yourself. I hope to talk with you soon.